Guess what? I'm moving country again. I don't know. Maybe a year. Maybe more. Where's home? Home's everywhere. I'm an expat. Hello, it's Pauline. Welcome to a new episode of Meet the Expats. Today I meet with Marcy, who has wandered all over the world as a tagalong wife and recently wrote a fiction book tackling many expat challenges such as loss of identity, anger, infidelity, and so we'll be covering a few. Hi Marcy, how are you? Hi Pauline. Thank you for having me on and I'm pretty good today. Good. I'm excited to to hear about your book and the different challenges that are a bit, how to put it, controversial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think this book will be, will be controversial. The book is about infidelity in a marriage that survives, or a, it's about a marriage that survives infidelity. Okay, well, how about you introduce yourself very briefly to the audience? Okay, well, my name is Marcy Maxfield. And I am a serial Tagalog wife. I've lived <laughs> in Paris, Tokyo, Shanghai, and Seoul. Wow. I'm American. I'm from Detroit and based in Los Angeles. And my book is called M's Awful Good Fortune. <laughs> okay. Let's start from the beginning then. And how did you move in the first place? What came up? My first move was to Korea. Right. Back my husband's first move was to Osaka, Japan, and I chose to stay in Los Angeles and pursue my career, and he went to Japan for about a year. We oh, wow. had a baby, yeah. We had a one-year-old baby who uh, began, who walked around with a little plastic telephone and said, Dada, <laughs> and it was heartbreaking. And uh, while I really wanted to stay and pursue my career, I didn't want to let go of it. I was in the music industry. And I like to say the music industry is like musical chairs. <laughs> uh, the music stops and somebody loses a job and they never get back in. Oh. So I was reluctant to go on that, on that foreign adventure. And my marriage suffered dearly for that. Um, it was hard to keep the relationship together. At first, we spoke every week. Then uh, maybe we spoke once a month. Oh, it, wow. it, was, uh, it was before email. So we just mm. weren't communicating. And there were a lot of issues in the marriage. So the next time that my husband was sent overseas, and this was in, to uh, Daejeon, Korea, I had two kids by then. Okay. And the children and I followed my husband to Korea because primarily I, I valued my marriage over my career uh, and yeah. I wanted to keep the marriage together. Right. And you had experienced it once. You knew what to expect the second time. I knew, which that, probably yeah, not. I knew that a year was too, um, too long for our relationship mm. and that's how um, infidelity sort of sneaks into expat marriages. And I also knew that it's not, it's not good for bonding with your children uh, right. if you're not there. <laughs> True. Okay, so this time you went to Korea. How did this work for you? Because, I mean, Korea is a big, big change and probably not the easiest expectation yeah, for a first one. I would say Korea didn't work. Yeah. Um, this was so long. This was my first expat uh, post. It was so long ago. We were in a small town 
and there was no expat community. And I went from being a full-time employed person with a music magazine to being a full-time mother. And the shock was not just a full-time mother, but a full-time mother with no other moms to hang out with, no play dates, no mommy and me, no preschool. I was 24-7 with the kids and my husband worked six days a week. Uh, As is often the case uh, in expat marriages or on expat posts, certainly with my husband, by the time they send him overseas, they're behind schedule and they're working around the clock. So that did not work. And I think I picked up my kids and went home to mommy in Detroit. (laughs) So you didn't stay for the whole expatriation. You left before? I left day john and um i went home to my mother who wisely said you can't stay here marcy (laughs) (laughs) i was like can i just stay till the whole thing is over so uh i went back and i insisted that we move or maybe it was convenient and maybe i insisted that we move to seoul which was at least a bigger city where i would have an opportunity to put my children in preschool and daycare Mm -hmm. and where I would have an opportunity to meet people. So I did go back to Korea and, and we, as I say, we got our groove back. My husband, the kids, the family, my husband agreed to work five days a week, like a normal (laughs) Normal person. I negotiated, I negotiated for that one, one for a weekend. I negotiated for the weekend. And honestly, I loved Korea. The food was great. I found the people to be um, exceedingly welcoming. And uh, so I was, I adjusted. Okay. I I just want to come back on one thing. You said that in Seoul this time you could put your children in preschool. Why in the first city, which was smaller, could you not put them in preschool? Because they didn't have one. um, Okay. And also uh, my uh, my son would have had to be in daycare. And I didn't have access to a daycare. And then I... There was only one preschool, which I think I finally found, but it was very small. And I, I did put my daughter in it, but I don't think she was happy there. So once we got to Seoul, there were there were choices. Options. Yeah, there were options. And I think I sent her to a Franciscan school, which may or may not still be there. And she was quite happy. And I also got a driver. I didn't have one in Daejeon. So I was able to go to the market. I got a babysitter. I was able to leave the baby home, have the driver take me to the market. My life just I got all the things. It was my first expat post and I didn't even know what to negotiate. I didn't know what to ask for. And I was completely alone and completely lost. So by the time I got to Seoul, I knew that I needed help. Yeah. And I spelled it out and the, it was, the company gave me whatever I needed at that point. Okay, so your husband's company was here to actually help uh, and accommodate. Yes, they were a small company and they weren't used to sending families. Mm. I think I was their, we were their first family. so they- <laughs> It was a test for them also then. Yeah, we were a test case for them. Okay, but yeah, it's good that you were able to negotiate and get a lot more to be able to live a life, actually. I I had a great time in Seoul, so um, that was good. But I had, I mean, that was, what, baptism by fire? I really had to learn what the things I had to ask for to make my life livable. Yeah, and how, how do you think you 
learned or what was important for you then so you talk about being able to move around having well your 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 children in daycare or in preschool so you're actually able to free up some time for yourself as well I just knew that I wouldn't go back without those. I, I negotiated. I actually negotiated with my husband and my husband negotiated with his company. I just said right. I couldn't come back and be left alone for six days a week without any mm. support and no babysitters and uh, no car. And I couldn't do it. Yeah. And no language. <laughs> so, of course, they um, they came up with the plan of what they were going to provide. And I love, I mean, it was, I mean, when you say I needed a car and driver, I, I do want to point out that they gave me a Korean surfer dude who drove <laughs> the van because it had to be, fit the surfboards in the back of the van. And, um, and he was learning English. His name was Mr. Kim and he was young and he was adorable and he was learning English and he was learning it from Playboy magazine. Oh, wow. So I did not <laughs> must have, have been a funny ride every day. I did not have the typical driver. I had the better than typical driver. And yeah. Mr. Kim ended up being my, really my, my lifeline there. And I mm. used to make him come everywhere. I would not let him sit in the car. I would make him come with me and the kids. I would make him come if I was by myself. <laughs> come to this museum, Mr. Kim. <laughs> <laughs> and how would he react to that? Was this like a big shock to him? Or? It was a shock because it was so Western for mm. me to include him. And also I think because I was, he was a single guy and I was a young woman with these kids and he had this, this sense of boundary and appropriateness. And I just broke him down with my American <laughs> I was just like, no, Mr. Kim, I don't have any friends. You need to come with me. You need to translate. You need to hold the kids. You need to help me get the kids. So we ended up being really good friends. Oh, it was wonderful. Nice. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. So, yeah, you were able to settle, find find, find your marks. I guess, I guess you were able to make a social life also in Seoul with more expats. I was, I was actually not as able to make a social life as you might think because by the time I got to Seoul, uh, we were not we were going to be in Seoul for just under a year. We had already been in oh, right. Daejeon for a longer period of time. And there's this thing I call tagalog math. Like if you go into a, ta a a coffee with tagalog wives, and they the first thing they ask you, even before your name, is how long are you going to be here? And if you're mm -hmm. not going to be there for a year, they're not going to invest in a friendship yeah. with you. So I call it tagline math. I didn't understand it at the time and my feelings were a little hurt. But when I got to Paris and I was going to be there, so I got to Paris, that was my next posting. And right. the first, first year I got there, I made a ton of friends and I was very naive. I just thought this is fabulous. And at the end of the year, literally half of them left, right? Oh, right. That's yeah. That's experience. And so year two, my girlfriend and I, uh, a woman who, Nancy, who I was very friendly with, she said, well, we have to be smarter this year. And <laughs> we, we're going to be here for four years. So we can't really make friends with people who aren't going to be here for the next three years. So we, we got really picky. And because yeah. of that, I understood what happened to me in uh, Seoul as being an expedient way to... Uh, manage the experience for the people who were there for the long haul. 
and didn't want other people coming in and out of their lives for a matter of months. Yeah. Yeah, I had never heard the term, but it it does make complete sense. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, moving forward, when we had a chat, you discussed that you moved quite a few times and in between you were constantly going back to the U.S., to Los Angeles. Right. In between every move. I mean, some some people go out on, they go on an expat experience and they're out the whole time. But we repatriated Mm. after every single move because my husband is project-based. And so when his project is over, there's no budget to keep him there. And even at one point, we were in Tokyo for about a year and a half or two years, and they needed, the project ended, and they wanted us to come home for six months and then return. Oh, and then return to Tokyo. Yeah. And again, I said no. Because it's too disruptive for the children. So um, I think at that point, my husband actually had to leave the company and, and move to a different company because the moving was so incompatible with, the family, with his mm. family life. But ultimately, we, we continued to move because that's his resume. Every time we moved, we went back to L.A. And sometimes we were back in L.A. long enough to think we were based there. And sometimes mm. we were only there for a year and we knew that in which case it was really hard to settle in. Yeah, Uh, I can imagine. So I do, in my book, I have a chapter called Repatriation Blues, (sighs) which is really about coming back to Los Angeles, not having access to my career, friends either having moved on or not understanding what what my life was like. I, I I, I ran into a lot of resistance from girlfriends and and even therapists who would just say, why do you keep doing this? Like, why don't you just say no? And let's say no, say no to what, to repatriation or to expat life. Yeah. It's the expat life. So there, I didn't come back to people who wanted to hear about my experiences. I didn't want, I didn't come back to people who wanted to hear about my travel or my, they, there was just, I don't understand your life. Mm. And um, and also there was a sense that they moved on. Yeah. And for my children, it was hard because it's for me as an adult, it's easier to understand that relationships shift and change. But for children, they come back and they expect their best friends to be there. And they were yeah. not. And I think that was specifically heartbreaking for my daughter when after four years in Paris to come home and, and not have her best friends and yeah. have left her new best friends in Paris. And mm. She was a preteen, so you know how that goes. So I think (laughs) repatriation is is really hard. And so I I definitely included that in M's awful good fortune. But the good side of that is that our family became so bonded. Oh, right. Yeah, I felt like we hunkered down like we were this unit, this tight little unit, the four of us, my son, my daughter, my husband, and I, and that we were the only people who understood each other anymore. Right. For that, on that call, it was, we were becoming a really tightly woven family. No, that's really nice that it, it brought you, all of you together. And yeah, I guess you were living experiences together and traveling the world. And we're still a very tightly woven family. Okay, so you were moving back and forth and you were saying the the career, uh, it was difficult to pick up the the career. So at what point did you sort of get this, 
aha moment and start writing. So our second post was in Paris and I took a writing class and I realized that I had a voice. And I mean, the truth is, I think in college, I might've thought when you fantasize about how you like it, I'm going to be a writer, but I had never really sat down and done anything but writing a few random poems. So I started taking writing classes. I had a few stories published. I had, so I had some success. I became an assistant editor at Upstairs at Drock, which is a literary publication associated with Weiss, Women in Continuing Education, and I developed a passion for it. And I had a few stories published, and then I became a co-editor of Upstairs at Duroc, which is a literary magazine associated with with Weiss. And this is an organization that that is an English-based organization that serves expats in Paris. And as we say, I caught the bug. I caught the Mm -hmm. writing bug. But what I didn't understand at that time, this is what I really devoted my life to for three of the four years in Paris. And then when I moved back to Los Angeles, I immediately had to get a job. That was the other, that's the thing about being a serial expat is that when you're overseas, you get a, an expat package that compensates for the Mm. loss of the spouse's income. But the minute. Okay. I I didn't know they were, they included that in expat packages. I'm not sure it's systematic. Okay. So. My husband's package would include a cost of living increase. It would include a stipend for me, which didn't cover my income. But it was when you add all the benefits of the package up, while we were not making a lot of money, we were were okay. But when we got back to Los Angeles, we no longer had my income and we were a double family. So we were not okay. (laughs) And that happened every time we moved home, with the exception of our last post. So... I always had to scramble to pick up my career. Uh, I never got back into the music industry as I foreshadowed in in the beginning. Every time I came back, I was I felt fortunate to get a job, any job, and my jobs were sort of a sliding scale downward. I, I thought I should write. That's a book. very frustrating. <laughs> frustrating, and I had this title for a book, laughing all my laughing all the way down my career slide. Because I was at the height of my career potential in terms of uh, brain power and skills, mm. and age, and, and I was just not moving my career forward. Yeah. And what I wasn't connecting was that writing could be a career. Mm. And, and I also need, we needed me to work. So uh, it, every time, then I would go overseas and I would spend all my time writing. I'm going to plug another write, overseas writing place, which is called writers.com. Okay. This is great for expats because you can take an English language writing class online and it's not based on any time zone. You just access it when at your own schedule. I, I literally have taken a million classes with them when I've lived <laughs> in Tokyo and in Shanghai. They saved my life. So that was That was a great thing. And it wasn't until I was in Shanghai, which is our last last post, that I began to take my writing seriously to the point where I thought I might have an audience. Okay. So this is when I began to really shift perspective because I had no career. At this point, I couldn't. (laughs) 
the piece of my career. And uh, so uh, with a friend who was based in Los Angeles, I began to send her some pieces. She was just putting a, a, a reading together, so a theatrical performance of 10 of my essays, and she was getting actors to do them. And then I, I actually left my husband, not left my husband, but left him in China and came back to Los Angeles to help produce and move this theatrical piece together. And it was very successful. And wow. then we took it to the Hollywood Fringe. The Fringe. Oh, no, yeah. Fringe Festival. Right. We took it to the Fringe and uh, won an award at the Fringe. Amazing. Yeah. It, it's an Encore Producers Award. So at that point, I just thought, okay, I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> And from there, I started on my book, Em's Awful Good Fortune, about the experience of being a tag-along wife and losing myself, losing my identity, um, almost losing my marriage, uh, losing my career, and then having to redefine myself and yeah. find and invest in myself, which was a huge shift. Yeah to put myself at that point before really for everything. I think I, I had to say if my marriage can sustain me pursuing my dreams, then it's meant to be. And it did. So that's a wonderful. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of Tagalong wives go through the same process of yeah loss of identity, having to reinvent oneself. It's something I've, I've heard a lot and I've seen with right. my, my own mother as well. Um, Yes, it's a difficult, difficult process. So maybe diving deeper into into your book, Em's life as a tag-along wife, uh, do you want to go a little deeper in one or two of the challenges that you tackle? Yes, absolutely. So I, I do. I want to talk about Em's Awful Good Fortune, my book, which is an autofiction. And a lot of people aren't really familiar with the term autofiction, so I, I thought I might explain it as I yeah. understand it or as it relates to my work. So I began, I, I started this process, I thought I was going to write a memoir. And, and I, I thought I was going to write a memoir and it was just going to be my experience as a tagline <laughs> one. And the husband was going to have no voice. And <laughs> I thought that was... Yeah, I thought that was the funny part. Oh, I'm going to be a tag-along wife, but you're not even going to know my husband. <laughs> and you can't really write a book without an antagonist. You need drama. So I began to to play around with characters, and M just came to life as this alter ego voice that just, I, I say that she's the booming voice. She's the engine of the book. So right. what started out as a memoir became autofiction because M is a character. She's a character that I know, but she's an amalgamation of, uh, or of many different women and their experiences. And my husband in real life is a good sport. <laughs> I will say about him because I needed you know, I needed a strong antagonist. So um, M is a book. Uh, M's Awful Good Fortune is based largely on the on the places where I've lived. And right. it, it's I, I like to say when I when I sat down to write it, I wrote a list of all the things people don't talk about in expat books. <laughs> you know, people write expat books and they talk about 
They talk about the country that they're living in and they talk mm. about things that they learn, the cultural exchange and, and the food. That's all really wonderful. But I set out to write a book that talks about the marriage and the things we've touched on, the loss of identity for the Tagalog wife, the struggle, um, bouts of depression, infidelity, which is a, a, a real threat in expat marriages. Mm. And so I made a list of all the things that, that I know from having coffee with women go on, but I never read in expat stories unless they're fully, fully fictionalized. I, I like to say my book has the authentic, the raw authenticity of memoir, but it is an extreme, M is an extreme character through which I'm exploring these themes that Tagalong wives experience. Okay. One emotion that you, you, you talk about and you mentioned is anger. So what would be sort of the reasons for this, for this anger? Right. I think that there's anger on a lot of levels. First, of course, is everything that you give up. And yes, we've talked about career, but it's also you give up close ties and community and you Mm. give the opportunity to go to weddings and funerals uh, and uh, or to care for an elder, an elder parent uh, or to see the birth of a child. And so I think there's anger. But I really in my book, there's a lot of anger in the relationship because this was never pre-negotiated. And right. today, they they come into marriage as fully developed humans. And mm-hmm. they, they expect that they'll have dual careers. And so this was almost like, part of me thought it was a theft, uh, that he stole my potential. When in right. fact, I think the character comes to realize that it, it wasn't so much a theft as it was a gift because she didn't fight, she, she gave it away. So, um, but there is definitely anger in these relationships and to go from being a full, fully engaged working woman to being, uh, to having um, soy sauce in your hair all day <laughs> long and sitting at a park with two kids who are bored and thinking, how did this happen to me? And yeah. so there's anger and there's frustration. And I think a lot of it stems from the fact that Tagalong wives don't get working papers and they yeah. don't get, uh, so they, they legally can't work and they don't get help from the parent company. They get money thrown at them, but for the most part, they don't get career guidance. And mm. I think that this is, is changing. And I think that if, if, expat spouses or let's say partners, if Tagalon wives begin to see themselves more as expat partners and begin to use the time overseas to pursue their own goals, whether that be to advance their education or to pick up artistic or creative skills or what, whatever. But I think that the if we shift, because I don't think a global world is going away except for COVID, mm-hmm. but I think it's coming back, let's say. I think yeah. that Partners need to value their own lives equal to the life of the working spouse. And that that is what will help marriages stay together. Hmm. Yeah, but I think there's also this realization that you can do something else than what used to be your career, but it takes 
a lot of introspection and understanding of what how you can find yourself and renew yourself also i agree 100 percent. i i feel like writing it appeared to me in paris i would say it really hit me on my head it was like pay attention marcy and i was but i didn't see how that impacted who i was in the u.s so i saw myself as two different people overseas i was a writer but in Mm -hmm. the united states i was a marketer i was a salesperson i was in the music industry then i wasn't so then i was in publishing and uh you're right it took me uh why to make the shift in terms of who how i identified myself Hmm. yeah it's 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 a lot of work on the person uh to, to, to just go find oneself when you're not used to it and you're not put in front of the fact that well if you want things to get better you might have to uh because you're not going to get help from outside unfortunately and um if you spend all your time um in happy hours and coffees that's what that's all you're going to have to show for it so yeah. I quickly learned that I personally needed to feel growth and I needed to redefine myself in order to be able to stay in my marriage. Yeah, but I think you had also experienced quite a few expatriations. So at some point you need something like you knew how it worked and you needed that extra little thing to be able to enjoy it. Yeah, I'm a serial, I'm an expat expert. In fact, (laughs) I possibly have an expat uh, post in ahead of me my <laughs> husband has just signed is going back to shanghai in oh. the fall okay and, yeah that's soon yeah it's soon like in a couple months <laughs> and uh right now china is not giving spousal visa visas that's actually a turn of events. Another awful good fortune. I don't know. It's <laughs> another ironic twist. So my husband is is going uh, to China for a year and a half to two years, and it's n- we're not sure whether I'm going to be able to accompany him. And a lot of that just depends on the global situation. So I'm uh, gearing up for that. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> I feel like we're solid, my marriage. (laughs) You've gone through a lot, so now you know how to hold it. Hold it together. All the circles. Okay. The the second difficult topic that you bring up in the book that I wanted to touch on is the infidelity. This isn't something we usually talk about, but do you feel not going to go into the whole societal study, but like do you feel like there's potentially more infidelity or more reasons to have infidelity when expat or because I guess it can just happen whether you're at home or also abroad. Like it's a whole context thing. Right. I think it can happen anywhere. Absolutely. But I do believe that if you have a partner who's traveling for six months or a year, mm. then it's more of a risk. And yeah. I also feel like when you're on an expat locate on an expat post there's a sense of the guardrails are off and there's a lot more drinking people who wouldn't smoke in los angeles are smoking overseas they're eating whatever you know they're drinking they're smoking and yeah they're fooling around because it's it's accessible and there's this sense of uh do you know this the what happens in vegas stays in vegas yeah 
Yeah. So what happens on an expat post stays on an expat post. And I have experienced some of this. I've definitely written about it. I have seen it in marriages. And I think it's a function of, on on the woman's side, it's if you... If you work six days or you're working five days, but you're working 14 hour days or whatever, because you're Mm. working and you're going out to drink, to drink after work. And in certain cultures, the women and wives are never invited. In fact, in China, my husband's company threw a new, a black tie New Year's party. Right. And spouses were not invited. And I don't really care because I don't like to go to those things. (laughs) But. I mean, that's a recipe. You're talking about a black tie New Year's party that has an orchestra and dancing and food and wine and alcohol. And and so these are environments that are almost inviting infidelity into your house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's funny how you talk about the companies who don't invite spouses. And I've been working for 10 years now and I've worked in Paris and in Dublin and at none of the parties were spouses ever invited. And my company in Dublin was an American company. And when the Americans were over for one of the parties, they were very surprised because apparently in the US, the same company, spouses are invited to the parties, whereas in Europe, they they weren't. And in Paris, the companies I've been, spouses were never invited to the parties because it was a work event. Right. So here's the absolutely. And that's true about this party that, that I just mentioned in this in the United States. I would I would always be invited. So what okay. happens is they feel like when they go overseas that they adopt the cultural expectation of, mm. of, of the expat of, of the, the country host country. But what happens is if you're a dual working couple in Paris, if you're actually not nationals there, yeah, you may not want to go to your husband's business party and you, cause you have your own business party to go mm. to. But when you have spouses who no longer work or have that kind of community, yeah. it's a social event. Yeah. It's, it's a social event for them. And yeah. I, I once, this was in um, China at the beginning, I was at a, in an introductory meeting for this, for the wives, and I was just observing, but the wives got into a very, very heated conversation about how women dressed at the workplace and that there should oh. be a dress code. And I was just, I was kind of blown away. And uh, so it's just something that I wanted to address that, that women are concerned about this. So I sort of, I, I just thought it was fair game to bring it up in my book and mm. to have it out there because I mean at the time of at this conversation I was kind of laughing because I come <laughs> because I live in low in LA and you know the way people dress in LA has never been acceptable in even in Paris. Even <laughs> in, um my kid not my dressing but I have the my kids went to the International School of Paris and the head the headmistress on like in the first week came out and talked to me about the way my daughter dressed. She was <laughs> probably 10 and um, it was it was very LA American girl with her belly exposed which is not acceptable in an international community but Mm. anyway so women the I think tag along wives are 
hyper concerned about this and they don't typically they talk about it amongst themselves but Mm -hmm. i never see it in books so i decided to bring it out from under the rug and really talk about that no it's interesting to hear that it is a concern it's not something i thought about necessarily when uh as an expat concern but i do get it given that Indeed, if husbands are working six days a week, long hours, plus parties, and you never see your husband at some point, you do wonder what's going on and want to sort of get to know the people and be invited to those parties, I I would understand. Yeah, once you know those people and get invited to the stories, it's completely different, mm-hmm. integrated. Yeah. And I actually, in Paris... I feel like I was in I was invited to almost all the social events, but that's never been true in Asia or certainly not in China. I think I might have been invited to a lot of things in Tokyo and there was nothing going on in, in Korea. But in China, it was a hard and fast rule. At that point in my marriage, I really didn't care, but I knew that there were women who did. Yeah. OK, well, that sounds very exciting. <laughs> a lot of topics in this book. I think we're going to move on to the recommendations. And so I'd like to know what let's pretend you're M and what M's recommendations would be for one bar, one restaurant and a carte blanche. So it's part of your choice. Okay. So I'm going to start a bar. I'm going to say in Shanghai, I really like Maita. It's, um, it's got a rooftop that has an incredible view of, of Shanghai and they've got great margaritas. It's <laughs> the little sister of a Mexican restaurant called Maya. Okay. So I think it's a great place in nice weather to sit on the roof, have a margarita and get a, a skyline view of the city. Nice. Okay. Uh, okay. And a restaurant. Yes. I'm going to mention Cafe Pierrot on Rue Etienne Marcel in Paris, only because okay. I think it's not a touristy space place. I think it's a neighborhood, uh, just a neighborhood uh, steak freak kind of place. Uh, and plus, it's in my book. Okay. And there's a scene in the book where um, I have a big fight with my mother-in-law. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's very across the haricot vert uh, and foie gras. And she's spitting at me across the haricot there and foie gras. But it was a walking distance from my house in the Marais. And we really, it was my favorite place to go because it felt like I was a local. Hmm. So I'm going to say Cafe Pierrot. And I'm going just to, I'm going to go with Place de Vosges. Again, I lived on the Marais, in the Marais, and I, um, I lived on Rue de Turenne. So all okay. I had to do was walk down the street and then it would just open up into the Place de Vosges. And I spent a lot of time with the kids there and the dog. We had a French bulldog. <laughs> and so uh, we spent a lot of time there and just roller skating and sitting and having coffee and uh, perusing galleries. and Place de Vosges. And so last... Um, that's the music piece. What would be Anne's song? So the music piece is, is important because I, I think I mentioned at the beginning that my career started out in the music industry and the character M um, carries that through the whole book. She okay. thinks of song titles. And, <laughs> I like uh, that. <laughs> yeah. So it's very, it's got a little bit of a rock and my book has a little rock and roll flavor. 
I'll own that. <laughs> and I would say that the theme song for my book is The Clash, uh, Should I Stay or Should I Go? It totally <laughs> for a serial tag-along wife. It's the question. Yes. Always- <laughs> I think we've all asked ourselves que- that question yeah. and sang that song at some point saying, what should I do? <laughs> Okay, nice. Well, that was fun. Uh, I'm excited to to see the book. M's Awful Good Fortune about being a tag-along wife is going to be out on August 3rd. So check out the book. Thank you. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'll link all the um, restaurants and bars and addresses recommendations in the comments and please put a rating if you enjoyed the episode and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks, Marcy. It's great to have you. Thank you, Pauline. It was, it was wonderful to be here. Yay. <laughs>